How you guys doing? Good. Why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. Book of Acts. We've been in a series in the book of Acts now, which is uh, sort of this narrative of the early church. It's, um, it's a great book. It's a book that basically describes the story of uh, what happened when God met a bunch of random people that were lost, um, gave them new life, brought them together, and then began to send them out um, as a community into a broken world. And that's really the story of the book of Acts. Um, lots of miraculous, uh, unique, in some ways even kind of crazy scenarios happened. And we'll be reading some of those this morning. So we've been in this series looking at the book of Acts. Um, particularly, we're going to be taking a look at chapters 4 and 5. And we uh, jumped into this a little bit last week. Uh, good job. If you guys don't have Bibles, definitely raise your hand. We have people that would love to hand them out to you. Let them know that you are interested in one. Um, but what we did last week is we sort of looked at a summary verse. And the summary verse was intended to kind of uh, um, cover a very large portion of Scripture. Um, uh, Chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's a very large um, narrative. It's a large uh, passage of Scripture. And we read through much of it last week. But what I want to do is I want to focus on that one main summary element. And then we'll begin to kind of spawn off from that and look at some of the main elements. And one of the things that we looked at verse... Uh, 33 of chapter 4 was there was this little passage that says and great grace was upon them all and we looked at the word great grace and the word great grace is the Greek word mega charis or mega grace I love that phrase and so um, what Luke who's the author of this book was telling us was that this early community of people we call the church um, upon this early community of people we call the church there was mega grace I love that idea that God had this mega amount of grace that was just basically being placed upon this community of people. So as they were going out, uh, doing the things that they were called to do by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, unique things were taking place. And so what we began to look at was, what does it look like? What, what were some of the characteristics of a church that had mega grace on it? Super grace, if you would think of it that way. So the first thing we looked at last week, and we'll just really quickly, I won't even kind of go into it, because we're not... Here last week, I encourage you to check out the website on the message that we had in there. But we looked at the first thing, which was radical generosity. Um, we see this uh, community of people that were radically generous uh, towards one another because they recognized that they were a community that had been acted upon by God with radical generosity. Um, in other words, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one who recognizes that there's a God that has uh, acted on their behalf with radical, extreme uh, generosity. So if you're a Christian today, it's simply because God has acted for you on your behalf with extreme, radical generosity. That's exactly what Jesus coming into this world is all about. That God didn't have to do anything. God didn't have to rescue you. God didn't have to speak words of life into you. God does not have to come near into this world. God didn't have to do any of this. There's no obligation that God owed any of us, to do really anything. And yet, what we see is that we have this God that acts in radical generosity on behalf of people. Those that believe that, that accept that, or receive that, or trust that, um, are people that have had their hearts melted by God. Rather than standing at a distance with a critical spirit, or anger, or, uh, or a frustration towards God, these are people that recognize, wow, God has done something for me. So their heart melts their heart is been impacted, if you would, by love. Love changes people's hearts. And that's what a Christian is. One who has had their heart changed 
by this radical act of generosity uh, from God to you. So again, we saw a community of people that were moved by this, and that's what we looked at last week. So again, end of summary from last week's sermon. So now we're going to jump into uh, fresh content. All right? You guys ready for some fresh content? I'll carry on the theme of James. Can you all say fresh content? Here we go. Don't you like it when people ask you to repeat stuff? Can you all say, can you repeat? Anyways. So what I'm going to look at today really are uh, the handful of other things that we see throughout the remainder of the chapters. Um, I'll just kind of quickly summarize them. Uh, Secondly, we'll take a look at this church that was impacted by radical grace or radical uh, mega grace was holiness. We'll look at what that looks like in a moment. Um, We also see that these were people that had great favor or influence among the people. Um, Fourthly, we see that they broke, uh, that the broken and the marginalized people were constantly being welcomed and ultimately being made whole within this community of people that had great grace upon them. And finally, we see that they were guided by providence, and I'll unpack what that means in just a moment here. So let's take a look at real briefly the subject of holiness, because I think um, the beginning of chapter 5 illustrates something that in some ways is kind of confusing. If you've ever read this passage, in fact, Pastor James taught him this two weeks ago, um, so my, my intention is not to go through the same content that Pastor James had taught, but to really just kind of highlight some elements about this. And again, we're looking at sort of this summary concept of great grace was upon this early community of people. And one of the ways in which great grace was upon this community of people was by forming them into a community of people that were holy. So how did God do that is really kind of the big question that we want to tackle now in trying to understand a little bit about the subject of holiness. Um, So let me pray real quick and then we'll jump in, begin to look at this and try to unpack and understand a little bit about how God's mega grace, God's great grace was over this community of people in in some of the various ways in which it was uh, demonstrated. So God, we ask you right now that you would uh, just cause our hearts to pause, to reflect upon who you are. Got to recognize your love, your greatness, your power that is here, that's mighty to save and rescue and transform and change our hearts. God, no matter what condition our hearts are in, God, if they're arrogant, you know how to humble us. If we're full of despair, you know how to lift us. If we're in disbelief, you know how to soften us. If we're full of cynicism, you know how to transform that. So God, we we pray right now that you would just Have your way with our hearts. Um, Transform us, we pray. And open our eyes to all that you have to speak to us through your word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to highlight the story. I'm not going to read through the whole entire thing again. As as I mentioned, this was already kind of taught a couple weeks ago. But I'm just going to highlight some of it. So the story is um, about a subject or a couple uh, within the early church, uh, just gives us a little snapshot about who these people are. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira is the Greek word for sapphire. Her name was Sapphire. So Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. That they, we see this within the context of radical generosity taking place, uh, that there were people, in fact, at the end of chapter 4, again, remember in the early writings, there was really no chapter break. So this would have read like one continuous narrative of one continuous story. So it ends in chapter 4, looking at the subject of a guy by the name of Barnabas. In, in the theme and in the context of this radical generosity, people were literally selling their goods, bringing it to the apostles or the leaders of the church, and then they were redistributing that wealth 
uh, amongst the people that had needs. This, within this community, this radical generosity, people were being radically generous uh, towards those who had needs. In fact, it was so radical that it actually said that nobody had needs. In other words, the needs that were amongst the people were actually being taken care of. Um, I love this. And we saw a little snapshot of this even last week when we kind of ended the service and doing something that I'd never really done before. We just asked, who are people that have needs and how can we uh, come alongside and help some of those needs? And the idea of kind of matching and pairing what are some of the needs and who are some of the people that maybe can help uh, respond to those needs. But we see the early church was acting within that way. But within that context, uh, there were people in the early church that no doubt had disingenuine motivations. And we're told about a couple, their name, again, Ananias and Sapphira, that apparently they had these uh, impure, disingenuous motivations. In other words, they were not acting according to the way in which Jesus acted and operated. There was deception amongst themselves. There was duplicity within their own heart. And so this dark story, it is totally a dark story. In fact, it reads like one of the Old Testament narratives, um, especially in the Torah, where it tells of... uh, certain priests that went in before God and uh, they brought strange fire before God and God actually kills them. So that's kind of the story of what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. First, Ananias comes to Peter and lays a large sum of money down at Peter's feet. Peter basically asks him, um, is, is this the entire amount of money? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. This is, this is all the money that we made. So apparently what seems to have taken place was he sold the property that he owned for a certain amount of money but then he brings not the full amount of money, but a, a portion of the amount, lays it at the apostles' feet, and says, this is the sum total of everything I sold it for. So it seems as if what's happening, is, there is deceitfulness. He's, he's lying. Um, now, again, we looked at this a little bit last week. Uh, there was no compulsion for anybody to give anything. We tried to unpack this a little bit last week further, because sometimes I think there's this misnomer that in order to be really fully committed to God, you have to get rid of everything. You can't own a house. If you own a house, it's kind of being unspiritual. But the fact of the matter is, it's absolutely not true. Because there were those in the early church that even though there were some that were selling their houses, I mean, these radical steps of uh, self-sacrifice to sell things of large sum, large amounts of money, large um, inheritances, they were giving them away, selling them in order to make money, then to redistribute the money amongst the poor. That was not mandated. In other words... Uh, you weren't required to do it. It was absolutely just on the basis of free will. So again, there is no uber-spirituality affixed to you selling everything and you living in in an impoverished state uh, that needs to be spoken because in some ways, especially young, sometimes men, single men, have this tendency to think that being super-spiritual means not having anything, getting rid of everything. And that, that sounds really idealistic and awesome until you meet the girl of your dreams, and then you begin to talk about marriage, and that, that, just whole, that whole ideology just simply does not work. But the point that I'd make is this, is that there were those in the early church that had houses, that owned property. How do we know this? Because it says they met in the temple and in people's homes daily. So somebody owned a house, or houses, and they met in those houses. So the idea is uh, that there was this radical generosity, whether on behalf of those who were selling property and using the money to give away to the poor, or taking their great investment called a house and opening it up, which is a sacrifice. All right, if you have ever 
own piece of property or you live in a house and you've been radically generous with that property, you know it's a radical sacrifice to invite lots of people over to your house. You got to clean it up. You got to make sure it's clean afterwards. You got to make sure toilet paper stock. That cost falls upon somebody, typically the owner of the house. So there's radical sacrifice. The big idea is this. The early church was filled with people who made radical sacrifices for each other, whether by way of selling their goods or keeping their goods and opening it up and sharing it with others. You guys get the idea. But the point is, there were also those in the early church, as it would appear, that were acting like they were being radically generous, although they weren't. And this seems to be the situation. It's super radical, I admit, but what happens is Ananias comes to Peter, gives us money. Peter confronts him. Is this the some total amount of money that you're giving? He's like, yes, which was a lie. Peter says, you've lied, not to me, but you've lied to God. You're dead. The guy falls over and dies. You're like, wow, that's, that happened. Yes, that happened. Now, later on, we're told, a few hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes in. Peter asks her the same, amount of, same question. Hey, the amount of money that was given... Now, she had no idea that her husband had just been killed, right, in church, right, which would definitely put the stops upon people wanting to join the church, right? If you found out there's a church service, like, here's what happens at church service. People die for being deceptive. There would be a little bit of a slowness to join that church. That seems to be, this kind of sounds shocking, but that seems to be the purpose. That seems to basically be the, the, the reason why the Holy Spirit allow this type of stuff to happen. Now, a couple things to say about this, because later on, uh, Sapphira, she lies. She carries on the same lie along with her husband. And Peter basically says the same thing to her. Is that just prior to you coming in here, your husband came in here, and people carried him out on a stretcher, dead. Same thing's going to happen to you. And she keels over and dies as well. Shocking. Again, the point is, is that this actually happened. Now, there's a couple things that I think to say about this. I mean, one... Um, we could deal with this type of stuff and gloss over it or not spend time on it, but I think that would be to do a disservice to the purpose of the text. This is the reality about the Bible. We have to take the Bible on its terms. And the tendency, I think, for our culture, our modern westernized civilization, is to want to cater and to edit a Christianity that fits our life, that fits our sensibilities. And the problem with that is, is that we end up catering and editing a Christianity to our own liking, but things that we dislike about the Bible, we uh, either gloss over, we omit, we talk it away, we uh, act as if it didn't exist. And the problem is, we end up having basically, for the most part, a Christianity that is devoid of its real potency. When a, a better approach is to simply let Scripture speak for what Scripture has to speak, and for us to humbly approach it with a manner that just simply says, an apostle that just simply says, God, speak to me, whatever it is that you, you want to speak, and I want to have ears to hear, no matter how hard it may be for me to hear this. And again, this is one of those portions of the scripture which we would say it's a hard reality. This is not an easy passage. I mean, we can read passages in the book of Ephesians and Psalms, and we're like, this is so awesome. The scripture speaks encouraging thoughts. But when we read passages like this, these are really hard pills to swallow. You mean to tell me somebody, two people died in the congregation, the gathering, because they were deceptive? Yes. Why? We're not given the absolute answer, but we are told what happened or the result was. The result was that 
fear came upon all the people. In other words, a holy reverence came upon all the people. In other words, a sense of pause. See, this is, this is something that's really difficult for us as Western thinking people to really try to comprehend or understand. We have this tendency to think that we can just sort of go walking into the presence of God, um, and yet no matter what types of baggage or what type of posture our heart might be in. And the, the, the funny thing is, on one hand, yes, God is a father. God comes across as a father to us. Jesus describes that. So on the one hand, yes, there is an open door which God says, come to me, no matter who you are, no matter what type of circumstances going on in your life. But there is also the other side of the reality of God, that he's holy. That, that we are to have some sense of a posture of, of pause before this holy, mighty God. If you think about that, um, you know, and again, I, I realize things have radically changed within American history, but there was a time in the early church, I mean, long before I think I was, I was actually born, but um, there was a mentality that back probably like in the Puritan days where Saturday nights was devoted to preparing one's heart and mind for Sunday morning as they would gather together with God's people to worship and hear God's word. So in other words, there was an intentional period of time devoted to just preparing, preparing or prepping your heart to meet with God. Thinking about God, preparing your heart about God, confessing your sin, recognizing what are some of the areas in your life, in the way that you live that are incongruent with God, confessing those things before God. And then when you gather together with God's people on a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, your heart is prepared. See, the the fact is, is I think many of us, we have a tendency where Sunday morning kind of rolls around, we wake up in the morning, maybe five minutes before we got to get to church, and we're not even really thinking about it. It's just sort of... It's just a routine that we do. And so we routinely come with no preparation of our heart before God. So here's, here's just a radical, out-of-the-box question. What would it look like if we became a community of people that rather than just simply haphazardly entering together as a community, if we basically began some form of systematic preparation of our hearts where we basically said we want to be a community of people that really come together with a heart that's prepared before God. So again, whatever that looks like for you, it might be, you know, it, it, there's, there's no method necessarily that needs to be sanctioned for this. But for each one of us, it, may, it might be a little bit different. But what would it look like for you to come with a heart that's prepared? So as you gather together with God's people, you might get here a little bit early, you might grab a seat, bring some of your friends, you are prepared, your mind is ready, you already have your coffee, you're already set, your mind is focused. So the moment they say, let's, let's get started, you're, you're, you've already been worshiping. Like your heart has already been opened to and having a posture towards the presence and the character and the nature and the mind of God. So this seems to be a little bit about what's happening with this scenario, that these people, their heart was being deceptive. Let's just read a couple quotes and I'll move on. Um, John Stott says this about this scenario. He says, Ananias and Sapphira wanted, to, wanted the credit and the prestige of sacrificial generosity, for sacrificial generosity, without the inconvenience of it. Their motive for giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. And he goes on to say, the devil's tactic, or the first tactic, was to destroy the church by force from without. We saw that this... That's, that seems to be what the, uh, the persecution was about. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, were pressuring them physically with physical harm. So without, there was this temptation to destroy the church. He says his second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. And this always happens. That, In other words, uh, a church can become weakened from within. 
that rather than having people that have a, a proper focus of the fear of God, we become people that just haphazardly approach God. We don't really think about the holiness of God. We're not really aware or uh, conscientious of the magnitude, the greatness, the power, the love, and yet the holiness of God. But what would it look like if we were a community of people that were equally aware of the love of God and yet at the same time the holiness of God so that we take time to consider who God is, what God's like, to prepare our hearts. And at the same time, when deception arises within our heart or the temptation to be duplicitous, to be one thing amongst other people of faith and to be an entirely another thing amongst people that are not Christians. In other words, to act in ways uh, while we're not with other Christians, as if we're not really a Christian. But when we get together with other Christians, we're like, oh yeah, praise Jesus. Like, we, tip, we rip out of our mouth kind of the vocabulary of Christians. But the reality is, that's not who we are. We're just, we're being deceptive. So, the early church this seemed to have been part of the story, at least according to Luke's telling of it, as a way of basically reminding the church, God is not to be uh, meddled with, not to be trifled with. Don't look at God in ways that belittles him for who he is. That yes, he is a God of grace. Yes, he's a God of great love. Yes, he's like a father. Yet he, at the same time, as we would describe it in the Old Testament, he, and as well as in the New Testament, he's holy. Um, if I had time, I would show you an, an outstanding video by the, uh, by, I think it's the Bible Project, this great video on holiness, but I don't. And I don't have it prepared to, to show you guys, so if you guys want, you can go on YouTube and check it out. But the point of the matter is, the idea, the subject of God's holiness should be something that's within our minds. It was definitely something that was in the mind of this church that was moved by God's mega grace. That God's grace was over them. And it seemed to create within them this mindset that, yes, God is holy, um, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, also is this great reminder. It says, if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So John would basically take this and use the metaphor of light to describe God's holiness. And what he's describing is that when we, as people of God, walk in ways that are like God, meaning we walk in light, we walk in the light of day, Rather than walking in darkness, the opposite of that would be to walk in a way that you don't want your deeds to be known. When people ask you about yourself, you are reticent to give answers because you are fearful about people discovering your garbage in your life. But if you walk in the light, what do you got to lose? I mean, look, at the end of the day, sure, exposure will happen in the light. But if you love Christ over or more than evil deeds... You're delighted to have those deeds exposed, even though it may be painful and never easy. But at the end of the day, what it leads to is a path of light. And not only that, John describes that if we walk in light, I don't have it up there, but if we walk in light as he's in light, we have fellowship with one another. So the implication is that when we don't walk in light, when we walk in darkness, guess what happens? We don't have fellowship with one another. I always like to think about this verse that if you were to invert it or to turn it inside out, the, the opposite would be true. In other words, if we walk in darkness, we do not have fellowship with one another. So what this seems to hint at is that when we are deceptive or when we are walking in darkness or there is darkness uh, encroaching upon our lives, one of the first things to go is relationships with other people. You've got to pause sometimes and just think about that and breathe that in a little bit and ask, are there areas in my life, are there locations in uh, relationships around me that are 
that are soiled, that are broken, that are corrupted, that are prone towards uh, dismemberment or falling apart or fraying. There's, there's really, if you trace that all the way back, what you will probably discover on one or both ends of those relationships is some form of darkness coming in. Some form of darkness, whether it's you know, actions that are, destruct, that are destructive or disrupted towards friendship or love or kindness or truth, um, or an uh, in, in unwillingness to forgive someone who has confessed sin and so on and so forth. So the point is, is that if we walk in light, if he's in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. It seems as if in an ice and sapphire, we're walking in darkness. And uh, they became basically a case study of what not to do, which then sent this ripple effect throughout the early church that says, wow, we should think twice about joining that church, which, which apparently was a good thing. So the next thing that we see is not only does this church that is uh, empowered by super grace, mega grace, is one that has radical generosity. It's also one that has ho- uh, holiness. Um, I like to think about the idea of generosity as basically being this concept of selfishness, becoming undone. That God was undoing the natural default mode of our hearts towards selfishness. He was undoing that. And the undoing of our selfishness is radical generosity. There's no other way around it. So if you look at your life, you're like, I'm never generous. I'm not generous at all. I'm not a generous person. Then there's a likelihood that you are mastered by yourself. You need, uh, you need to be set free from that. And good news, that Jesus actually sets us free from that. The same is true also, I think, with regard to holiness. That holiness is uh, hypocrisy undone. God is undoing our proneness towards duplicity, towards deceitfulness. That he's wanting to undo those things in which we oftentimes, on the one hand, are living in a way that is completely incongruent with his life. Uh, Again, if you are living in a status of hypocrisy, um, you're, you're you're mastered by enslaved by the need to keep up the mask. And at some point, that gets extremely exhausting. I mean, at some point, it becomes extremely exhausting because you lose focus, lose connection with what, what is reality. And you need to be set free. And the way that you're set free is by being brought in, by being moved by, transformed by the light of God's presence, otherwise known as his holiness. And this is what seems to be happening within the early church, that a church that is empowered by mega grace is one that is radically generous, and secondly, one that is moved by, motivated by holiness. And thirdly, we see that this is a community of people that also, uh, the broken and the marginalized, were welcomed and made whole. And this is kind of an amazing uh, reality. This is kind of where we pick up with, with really uh, fresh content. Like I said, Pastor James had looked at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Now we're moving on, again, like I said, all within the summary fashion of what I think Luke's trying to outline here. So one of the things that he, noticed, uh, what he notes within the early church is that the broken and the marginalized were constantly being welcomed and ultimately made whole. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 16, I'll read this, and just simply says this. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, or Solomon's porch, portion of the temple on, uh, the, the, on the temple mount. Verse 13, it says, And none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Uh, and it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick unto the streets, and they laid them on cots and mats, 
that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on, them, on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So if you paid attention to that, that again, that's another one of those passages that's like, what? That's crazy. That's, that's, that's weird Like to, to hear, if I understand this. And again, to reiterate, I'll just kind of describe it in two sections. On the one hand, we see that there were unique miracles that were taking place, unique miracles uh, that were happening. And so, again, if you paid attention, you notice in verse 12, it says that many signs and wonders were regularly being done by the hands of the apostles. That's not super weird, but what gets really weird in verse 15, it says, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets so that as Peter came by, listen, ready? His shadow, when it fell upon them, they were healed. Did you catch that? So just think about this. Here's Peter walking by. Here's a shadow cast by the sun. There's a bunch of people that are literally bringing out those that are sick and diseased and broken and uh, unable to walk, who are crippled. And they're trying to posture them and place them in a position where Peter's shadow is going to be cast upon them. Because the hope was that as Peter walked by, his shadow cast upon them was healing them. All right, straight up, that's absolutely crazy. That's weird. But again, we have to take the scripture at its face value and this, this, this happened. This happened. And it's in the story because it took place. Now, that being said, we have this tendency in our mindset to think that if God acted one way, then he always acts the exact same way throughout all time. And the fact is, is that when you read the story of Jesus throughout the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you read the story of Jesus' actions through his people, the church, uh, in the book of Acts, you realize that God does not always work in the same way twice. I mean, oftentimes God works in the most extremely unpredictable ways. So what type of posture should our hearts have with regard to expectancy upon God and how he works? Not to, and the answer is, not to expect God to do the same thing always, repeatedly, over and over and over again. But to have a heart that's open to the possibilities of God doing new things in new ways. Now, that being said, nothing that's ever going to be in contradiction or contradistinction to Scripture, but to be open to the fact that God may want to do things in new ways. And this seems to be the trajectory that the book of Acts is casting for us, that Peter is why, I mean, there's no other miracle story explained in the entire Bible, not even with Jesus, that does a shadow heal somebody. So again, this is radically unique, but again, it happens. If you uh, follow throughout the book of Acts in Acts chapter 19, another really crazy passage, I'll just read it to you. Uh, This is a story of Paul, which Paul hasn't entered into the storyline yet, but he will at some point. Uh, He becomes a leader in the early church, and we're told about Paul. It says in verse 11, chapter 19, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he had touched. Now, now Paul, by trade, uh, his day job, if you would, he was a tent mender, which meant that he kind of worked in the typical uh, fashion. He was a tradesman. His trade happened to be mending leather or tents and stuff like that. So Paul uh, would obviously get really hot, right? When you're working in a tent and you're sweating, you need a sweatband. So Paul would have these sweatbands. And that's, that's what almost every single scholar theologian believes, that this is what it's talking about. The handkerchiefs was not just like, you know, a little handkerchief in his back pocket. It was a sweatband. So Paul's sweatband was being taken off, and anybody whose skin it touched uh, people would, would carry away the sick and the diseases and they left evil spirits, that when they touched these sweatbands of Paul, they would be made whole. I know, absolutely crazy. But again, 
this seems to be somehow God was, was doing this. I don't want to try to explain how or why, but the fact is, it just, it's, we're told that it happened. So the point that I would make is this, is that we see these unique miracles taking place within the early church. Now that led to this radical movement where all sorts of broken, marginalized, hurting people, people for the most part, that were cast off, cast out of society, were flocking. And this seems to be why they were flocking. Because the idea of healing someone or the idea of making someone whole was not just simply a physical healing of, of an infirmity, but it was rehumanizing them. It was taking them from a status or a place whereby they were absolute nobodies with no name, just a face in the midst of a crowd of nameless people and giving them a name, giving them a spot in humanity, giving them a place in God's kingdom. This is God basically taking people for the most part that have been cast out, people that have been forgotten, people that nobody cares about, and God saying, I care about them, I love them, and I'll welcome them, and I'll bring them in, and I'll heal them, I'll rehumanize them, I'll show the rest of the world that they belong to this company of people called human beings, because they belong to me, they were made in my image. See, we have the same tendency, I think, within our own culture, where we look at people that are not like us, we oftentimes have the tendency to write them off. This is where we get the various forms of racism, classism, people that are not like us. People, if you're, if you're rich, for example, you got a lot of money, there's a tendency or temptation for you to look at people that are poor, that don't have, a much, that, don't have that much, to look at them as somehow subhuman. But do you know the same uh, virus infects even the impoverished? People that have nothing, the tendency, the temptation is for them who have nothing, who live off of food stamps, those that have absolutely nothing, to look at those that have uh, everything, those that are wealthy, those that are the 1%, to look at them as somehow being monsters and crazy people and people that are just worthless in culture and they're nothing but beasts out to destroy. Now, obviously, in some cases, that may or may not be true by the way that people act, but the point is the temptation is to dehumanize people that are unlike you. That is the root of racism. It's the root of, in some ways, patriotism. To look at those that are not part of your clan, your tribe, your community, your people, your race, and somehow dehumanize them by saying, calling them names, by putting them into places where they are in the margins of society. But we see the gospel going forth and actually reaching into the regions of the margins and saying, no, 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 you, you matter to God. Come near, be made whole. And this is, this is absolutely radical. Like, I don't, I don't know how many of us would, would be impacted. I mean, it's easy for us to read a passage like this and, and not really be hit by the reality of this. But in the first century, people that were sick or marginalized or demon-possessed, we might even describe them as crazy people that did, they, they had mental problems or we might think of them as having mental problems, people that are literally just on the fringes of culture and society the temptation was to just look at all of them as somehow being cursed by God. Cast-offs. People that nobody wants to interact with. People that nobody wants to give a hand out to unless you feel uber generous and you have some level of pity in your heart for them. But the idea of actually going to the complete extreme length or level to uh, reach out and give your life over to helping alleviate their suffering was, was, was not always happening as much as it happened even in today's world. But the point is, is to sometimes even think of people as, well, they're cursed by God. And what we see is the early church is basically going around to all of these people 
that were, quote, unquote, cursed by God and somehow being a blessing to them by revealing to them the blessing of God. And and the reason why we know that, it's the punchline of all this, is the reason why the other church could do that is because they recognized the radical generosity of God on their behalf was that God, in Christ, became a curse for them. So that those who bear the curse of sickness and disease and brokenness and marginalization from God can actually be given blessing and being drawn near to God. Rather than staying in the margins, rather than being at the distance, they can be drawn near to God. And this is what we see. So now they have this radical generosity to go communicate, spread that message on to other people. So we see not only the uniqueness of these miracles, we also see this sense, well, it's described as unhindered openness. And just take a look at the the bullet points here. I mean, one, we see multitudes of both men and women. Now, again, I think um, we might miss this, but the addition of the little phrase, and women, was absolutely significant. Because, again, in the first century, the temptation in that Western, or in that Middle Eastern culture was to view women with sort of a subhuman type of a perspective, that they were property. And this is oftentimes the way women would have been treated within that culture. Now, again, we live in America. We live in kind of a uh, society that had done uh, much to help advance uh, female rights and so on and so forth. But in that culture, women did not have those rights at all. They were property. They were treated as property. They were mistreated as property. And what we see here is that both multitudes of both men and women were being rehumanized, being welcomed. We also see those who are afflicted or those who are sick, those who are afflicted with unclean spirits, um, either demon-possessed or some would identify maybe uh, mental illness or mistaken that as that as well, maybe even that as well. But the point of the matter is, is and they were all healed. In other words, they were all given place of being made whole. I love how N.T. Wright describes all this, and I'll just read this little quote because it's so good. It says this. N.T. Wright was a, uh, is a... Uh, uh, theologian, he says this. Um, he says, the healings were not simply a matter of proving or providing urgent medical care for the people who needed it, though that was, of course, enfolded into the larger purpose. It was a matter of God's power going out and doing a work of new creation in deep continuity with the original creation, which, according to the apostles' message, was linked to Jesus' resurrection. In other words, what God is doing here is he's sending forth clues, radical clues, that his kingdom is breaking in. God is subduing, he's undoing a kingdom of brokenness, a kingdom that separates, a kingdom that marginalizes. And that's exactly what Rome did. And I would even say that's exactly what every other subsequent uh, empire has always done. Every empire has this tendency to kind of separate those who have from those who have not. Not God's kingdom. God's kingdom is radically upside down. God's kingdom is radically subversive to those other kingdoms. And what we see here is that it's so radically subversive that God actually goes to those that are nobodies and says, no, you are somebody. This is so amazing what God is doing. And what N.T. Wright points out is all of these are indicators of the fact that God is about bringing forth new life. Another way to think about this is the concept of creation, that God created all things, he created all things good, and yet what we know, we live in a world in which how do you explain evil, which is a big question, a big philosophical question that many religious leaders, as well as philosophers and so on and so forth, have attempted to try to tackle and unpack and understand, but the Bible actually gives its own answer to that. 
the reason, the explanation as to why evil exists is because God created all things good, and yet mankind had a choice. Mankind chose, rather than to love God, there's one uh, philosopher I, I, I like to listen to, I like to read, he describes evil not so much as a thing, but as the absence of righteousness or holiness. That when we do something, it's, he describes it as blindness. That blindness technically is not a thing. You cannot locate in the eye. There's blindness, but blindness is the result of the absence of the ability to see. He describes evil as the same way, that evil is this absence of righteousness, the absence of choosing good. And, and what happens is we have all played into this. We've all been affected by evil. And yet what we see is in the creation, we see forces of anti-creation at work. In other words, forces that seek to undo God's good creation. That rather than promoting goodness and kindness and justice and righteousness and love and goodwill towards other human beings back to God, we have become a race of people that do harm to each other. We alienate each other. We marginalize people. We create classes of people, those that have from those that have not, those that have and share my color skin from those who don't have or share my color skin. We basically promote evil in this world by neglecting justice and righteousness. It's anti-creation. It's undoing the very good thing that God has set in motion to bring about. But that's not the end of the story because the story goes on. It's not just creation, anti-creation, it's new creation. That's what we see in the gospel. God is up to something whereby he is bringing forth new creation. Another paradigm to think about is life, death, and resurrection. Life, death, and resurrection. God made all things. He breathed life into all human beings. But death, as a result of our rebellion and turning away from God, um, has led to death. But the end is not death for those that trust God because this powerful God is at work and God has the power to undo death in an act called resurrection. That's what we see with Jesus. Life, death, and resurrection. Fourthly, wrap this up, is we also see that these people had a sense of favor and influence among the people. I'm done. I'll finish this up next week. I'm just going to keep preaching for too long, and then you guys are going to get mad. So I want to finish right now. No, I'm going to finish. Thanks. Um, Isn't that a great way to end the sermon? (laughs) I I, want to read a great quote, though. I'll just read this, and then then we'll go into a time of worship. Because, again, I I, I know if I get into this, it's going to be like, yeah, another two hours. So you could be saying, thank you, Pastor Brian. I'm just kidding. Um, Anyways, thank you. Uh, listen to this quote, it's by N.T. Wright, it's the last slide that's on there. Um, again, just another great quote. It's, it's kind of long, so I just want you to listen to what he has to say. It's so good. Just, just listen to how he describes this. He said, the fact of so many people coming to Jerusalem and being cured was not simply a matter of sudden burst of healing energy. It was about the establishment of a new reality in a dangerous place. Think about that. A new reality in a dangerous place. That's exactly what God's kingdom was. Showing up on the Temple Mount it was radically subversive and dangerous to the kingdom of God. This is why, later in the story, Peter ends up getting arrested, thrown in prison, and then beaten. It says, the power of the living God became concrete, definite, undeniable, not simply a matter of a few people telling a very strange story about a resurrection. It is when the church, through prayer and wisdom, accompanied by the proclamation of the gospel, and often in the teeth of opposition, acts with decisive power in the real world, goes on, 
Next slide. To build and run a successful, a successful school, a medical clinic, to free slaves or remit debts, to establish a housing project for those who can't afford local rents, to enable drug users and pushers to kick the lifestyle and to see the hardened and violent criminals transformed by God's love, that people will take the message of Jesus seriously. Of course, there will be then an opposition because we shall be invading territory that is currently under alternative occupation. But God's power will be at work and people will know it. This is the story of the resurrection. Like when God takes people that were once bound by sin and rebellion and, and, and evil, again, the opposite of righteousness and obedience and love to God, when God sets those people free and creates a community of people that are like-minded in the fact that Jesus is Lord and then sends them out into the world to do whatever they do in the world. Again, this is why he gives sort of this menu of items, menu of options, some of which obviously might take up gospel work, like planting churches, being a missionary, being on staff at crew or uh, poly-Christian fellowship, or simply being someone that is involved in some of the other things that he describes here. The idea is that when we set about in motion actions that are about new creation, showing people that they're not nameless, worthless people in the margins that everybody else has omitted and forgotten, that instead when we show people that, no, 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 God is alive, and that even though you may have been impacted by the forces of anti-creation, in other words, death, and rebellion are at work in your life. You've been the impact or an impacted or the recipient of death in your life. That there's a God that comes to undo that, to bring forth new life. And by our actions, when we demonstrate that, then people can take the reality of the resurrection seriously. Again, when the church in the opposite is constantly bickering and fighting and angry and uh, carrying on any, and enforcing various forms of grudges and hatred and constantly promoting a message that here's everything that we're against, rather than promoting the truth, the element of the gospel, the good news that God has come to redeem and restore and save by taking a, by a radical act of generosity, by absorbing in himself the forces of anti-creation. That's what the cross is all about. God was on the cross in the midst of the world's suffering, taking upon himself the sum total of the forces of anti-creation. But again, that wasn't in the story. So that then he would rise again and create a new community of people that are impacted, affected, given life through his death. That when we begin to realize that we as a community of people are a community of people who have been demonstrated this radical act of generosity, then... And only then will we begin to realize the depths of that, to be changed and transformed by that message, and then become radically generous people. People that are not afraid to track down people that are other, that look different than us, that act different than us, people that are not like us, people that for the most part at one point in our lives we might have marginalized or shoved off into some corner or dehumanized. But what the gospel does is it radically opens our heart up to see the possibilities of God at work in the midst of a world that's gone horribly wrong. To bring life, to bring forgiveness, to bring newness. And he's doing that through us. So if you're a Christian here, that's who you are. The call of the gospel is always to live according to who you are. Living beneath that, living below that, living in a way that's contrary to that, you're not living according to your true identity. And the Bible's 
constant call is to reinvite you to come back into the story of which you've been found. Come back into the story to live according to the power that is alive at work within each one of us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, meaning you are living your life on a path that is in contradiction to God, and there's never really ever been any desire or openness or willingness to hear or respond or love or worship or honor God, then the call of the gospel is always to go as well to you to invite you to recognize and to really even think about where is your story taking you right now? Is it one that leads to life? I mean, if you, if you scrutinize it long and hard enough, I think what you'll discover is the story that you may find yourself in is one that will at one point expire. And when it expires, what will happen to you? The, the, the call for you, the invitation for you is to get out of that story by repenting, turning from it, and then turning to this God that is eternal, that lives forever, to be transformed, to be changed, to have your sins forgiven, to have the rift that's between you and God transformed, and then become a brand new creation in Christ, to be made new, to have your past washed away, to have your sins blotted out and forgiven, to be given new life. That's what the Bible's invitation. So there's something in it for all of us. So we're going to respond. I'm going to pray. Worship team will come on up. We'll respond by way of partaking of communion, which is, if you think of it this way, it's a renewal. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's a renewal of the wedding vow. It's a renewal, reminder of the fact that God in Jesus called you, welcomed you, said, I give myself to you entirely. All that I have now belongs to you. And the way they did that was by broken body. And he does this by demonstrating an act of welcoming love. It's a meal. Shocking. It's not, it's that what, what Jesus invites us to is not a lecture table. It's a dinner table. It's not to come and be necessarily trained and learn new info. Although it does involve that. But it's, first and foremost, a dinner table to come and partake with a God, to be intimate. It means to be transparent with him, to love him. We'll sing, we'll pray. So there's some rugs in the front. If you just want to come forth and just be on your face before God and worship him, that's the invitation as well. So why don't we all stand, let me pray, and then we'll sing. We'll respond. God, we give you thanks for your great love. And so even now, Lord, we respond back to you by faith, repentance, turning from our our commitments, God, that are to alternative realities that that don't belong to you, that actually lead to death. God, things that we hope would somehow give us life, but in reality, they don't give us life. They constantly just keep giving us grief over and over and over again. In other words, our suffering is constantly being compounded by us giving ourselves over to this thing or these things. So God, we want to turn from those things and turn to you who gives us life, who welcomes us with arms wide open. You absorb our sin, our shame, our guilt. You don't compound it. You forgive us of our sins. You give us life. So Holy Spirit, come now. Make yourself known. Invite your presence here to bring healing, not only emotionally, but God, in some people's lives, if there's physical ailments, God, bring healing to those physical ailments as well. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done.